Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the chance to be here this evening. And God, we pray as we look into your word that our hearts will be open. God, that we'll be willing to hear from you and willing to do whatever it is we need to do uh, to make sure that we're in step and in line with you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's give the choir a hand for a... uh, a very good job as they're coming in. When you hear the, the phrase, the bottom line, I'm sure that you, you uh, different things come to your mind, but most of us understand very simply that that means let's get to it. Uh, we're getting ready in the next few weeks to send out the proposed 2016 budget for you all to look at, and then we'll vote on it in December. And, and uh, Clayton and... Uh, Brenda and I have been playing with it some, and Clayton and Brenda played with it, and she called me in Monday and said, I want you to give your final approval on this. And the only thing I was thinking about at that point, the bottom line, how much are we proposing to spend next year? Because that's what everybody's going to want to know, basically. The bottom line, you understand. In your line of work or in your world, the bottom line. Well, this evening, we are starting a sermon series, going to run through the fall, on the doctrine of salvation. Now, I know when you say doctrine, people uh, and uh, initially they feel like they're already going to fall asleep. Doctrine doesn't have to be boring or dry. Doctrine is our beliefs. And, and after the doctrine of God, the, the second most important doctrine is the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of God is who is there a God and who is God, Right? So we, you know, and we believe we will do a series on that at some point. But then after that, the second thing is the, how do we know God, the doctrine of salvation? Who can be saved? Who does God want to save? Uh, let me ask you a question this evening. Let's, and, and this series is not an evangelistic series. It's a, uh, really a deeper series for Christians. How many of you want to go to heaven someday? How many of you want everyone you know and love to go to heaven someday? The stakes are pretty stinking high, and uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. By the way, I have got a newly created study team together, and uh, two of the guys that helped me on my sermon tonight were Dr. Daniel Scoggins and Dr. Patrick Sexton. So anything you disagree with tonight, I will give you their cell number, and you can get a hold of them after church, and they would be glad to take any abuse or insults that you have. Right, guys? Yeah, they're crawling under their pews because I embarrass them, and I understand that. Okay. The first thing we have to do tonight is we have to see, strange as this may sound, the dilemma with this issue. The dilemma with this issue. Now, we're going to use two scriptures tonight, John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.9. John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter is after what? Yeah, you got you are sharp. You are sharp. What is the dilemma? John 3.16, read it out loud with me. For God, we kind of drifted back and forth, but y'all kind of got it, uh, got it well. Now that seems simple, doesn't it? That that God loves the world, and that anyone who wants to come to Christ, whosoever, can be saved. The problem is, is that uh, there are different camps 
on salvation. Now, some of the things I'm going to share with you tonight, some of you have heard many times. Some, this may be the first time you've heard some of this stuff. I think it's, it's super important because this has become kind of a hot topic today. It's become a hot topic in our Southern Baptist Convention. There was a lawyer who became a preacher in the 1500s whose name was John Calvin. John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1554. Calvin developed a system of beliefs. He wrote a lot. He was a prolific writer, a great thinker, a preacher. And he put out what is called the Institutes of Religion. That was his kind of his... uh, Uh, Magna Carta, his big deal, his big religious statement. And in them, he presented what for that time was fairly new, a systematic concept about salvation. And I'm, now listen, I'm trying to sum up stuff that you talk about in graduate school in five classes over three years. So Give me a break if I have to rush through some of this, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to narrow it down really, really uh, easily or, or, or in a simplified way. John Calvin presented an idea of salvation that God had predetermined some to be saved and predetermined others not to be saved. Some were chosen for salvation. Some were obviously not chosen for salvation, now, you look at John 3.16, and I don't see that, but well, you, don't, you don't interpret the Bible by one verse alone. You interpret it by the whole thing. Baptists, where have Baptists been on this issue? Now, what's funny, if, uh, if you get the Baptist message, the Louisiana Baptist paper, occasionally there will be a spat over this in the Louisiana Baptist paper. And uh, I came real close a couple years ago to getting involved in the spat, but all I could think about was you all and you all firing me, so I didn't respond to any of it. But, but people, it's pastors because they're bored and don't have anything else to do. One would write in and say, well, Calvinism has never been a part of the Southern Baptists. Another would write in and say, Cal- Southern Baptists have been Calvinists and, you know, until they were hijacked by Billy Graham or something like that. Here's the truth. In the history of Baptists, and the Baptists is a whole, not an old, old group, before Southern Baptists, there were Baptists who were called uh, General Baptists, and there were Baptists who were called Particular Baptists. General Baptists believed that anybody could be saved. Some of you are particular people, but I'm not talking about that. Uh, General Baptists believed that anyone could be saved. Particular Baptists were Calvinists. They believed that God had chosen some. He did not choose other. Now, what about our Southern Baptist Convention, which really came into effect in the 1850s? If you listen to some people, you would hear them say, well, Southern Baptists have always been Calvinists. Uh, And that's not true. You might listen to some others who would say that that's not our roots. The truth is our roots came from both of those, general and particular Baptists. We we have some Calvinistic roots in our history. We certainly have non-Calvinistic roots. Now, if you're my age or close to it, and I'm 21, uh, really in the 20th century, most of the 20th century in Southern Baptist life, Calvinism was a non-issue. You didn't hear about it. I, I didn't hear about it growing up, and I grew up in churches with pastors with doctor's degrees and educated godly men. Uh, it, it really, in the Southern Baptist Convention, has resurged in the last 20 to 25 years is where it started to become uh, prominent and well-known. Dr. Steve Lemke, Dr. Lemke is from Ruston. He is a professor at New Orleans Seminary. 
Dr. Lemke said that that in the 90s, slowly and subtly, Calvinism began to uh, work its way back into Southern Baptist life. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to just give you observations. Today, two of our six Southern Baptist seminaries, the seminaries of graduate school for preachers, are controlled by Calvinists. And so, what they're basically putting out are what? Are Calvinists, because when you control academia, you control a lot of the, uh, what, what comes forth. They did a survey of Southern Baptist pastors, uh, which if you don't know, we're Southern Baptist Church, and I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. I wasn't interviewed for this questionnaire, by the way. Um, but they found out that only about 10% of Southern Baptist pastors say that they are Calvinist. But in our convention, some of them are in high places and powerful places. So it is, it, it's making a comeback, and it's something you need to be aware of. John Calvin, in his institutes, said this. I admire his honesty on the subject. John Calvin says, God, before the creation of the world, before you were born, he predetermined some of you to go to heaven, and he predetermined some of you to go to hell. I've heard Calvinist friends of mine who are pastors, when I would ask them that, they'd say, oh, no, 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 Calvin was wrong on that. God has predetermined some to go to heaven, but he didn't predetermine anyone to go to hell. We're all born lost. He just chose some, and the others he didn't choose. Listen, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not an ignorant ramus either. And if I could save you, but I choose not to save you, by default, I have predetermined you're going to hell. Now, I know people who are comfortable with that. Maybe you are. I don't know. What you and I have to look at and what we're going to look at in the next few weeks is trying to understand this subject biblically. Here's why it's so important, because beliefs determine behaviors. They do for churches, they do for individuals, they do for families. Your beliefs determine your behavior. You remember that memory verse that you don't know that I preached on last Sunday morning? Watch your life and your what? Your doctrine closely because your beliefs determine your behavior. They, they absolutely, they, they will. My sister, uh, one of my sisters, her husband is a minister and they had a, a pastor come in and they didn't really know what he believed, which is the craziest thing in the world. Listen, if I choke on a donut Sunday morning and you have to get a pulpit committee together, when you're looking at a new pastor, find out what they believe. Amen? Don't roll the dice. Well, he's tall and good looking, opposite of our former pastor. We want to call him. Yeah, that's real funny, wasn't it? Um, but... This guy came in, and I, I'm not sure how honest he was with the committee or how thorough they were in their questioning, but he was a hardcore Calvinist. God's predetermined some for heaven, some for hell. That was not the tone of that Southern Baptist church, and a church that was running 300 was running about 100, and he was on, you know, he resigned before they hang him, you know, hanged him at the, from the steeple. 
It's an important issue. It's a huge issue. Several years ago, Louisiana Baptist College, our Baptist University here in uh, Pineville, Alexandria, let go a couple of Bible professors. And one of the claims was is that they were teaching and espousing Calvinism. They denied it. And then interestingly enough, one of the professors went to a Calvinist seminary right after he denied uh, holding to that. So beliefs determine behavior. If people are predestined for hell, or if people have a choice, I submit to you this matters greatly. This matters greatly. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to answer two questions with this this second point. Who does God want to save and who can be saved? Again, after, after who is God, I don't think there's a more important question. Who does God want to save and who can be saved? And I want to say this tonight. I have no intention tonight or any night of dogging Calvinism or Calvinists because I have friends who are Calvinists. I have no intention of doing... I just want to be honest. I mean, if a Calvinist preacher was preaching his version of this, if he's being honest about what I believe, that wouldn't offend me. And if any of you are Calvinist here tonight, are you welcome at this church? Absolutely you're welcome at this church. I really don't want you teaching this if you're teaching. But I hope I can convince you. I hope we'll have a conversion tonight from Calvinism. But, but I, hope, I hope that you will listen and be open to, to what the Word of God has to say. I would be happy to meet with any of you anytime to talk about this one-on-one, especially if you'll buy me lunch, food. Food makes me talk. My wife has found that out. Now, here's one other little disclaimer. I am not going to get in an argument with some friend or preacher that you like and that that you're going to share this with. I have too much to do to fight with some other preacher about what I'm preaching to my people. So I'll talk to you all day long about it, but I don't want to somebody from California calling me mad because I offended Mike Hilton tonight. Mike, I'm not worried about it anyway. But um, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, one, I want to ask you, would it matter to you if you found out tonight you were predestined to go to hell? You bet it would. Now, here's the funny thing. I have never met a Calvinist who believed they were predestined for hell. Isn't that funny? I'd be convinced if Joe came up tonight and said, I'm a Calvinist and I'm convinced I'm going to burn forever. I'd say, Joe, you're crazy, but you know what? You believe what what you're teaching there. It it, it impacts missions. It impacts evangelism. It it impacts church planning. Now, I I know that there are Calvinistic churches that are doing these things, but historically, it begins to wane because you begin to say, two plus two equals four, if If my prayers, if my work, if my preaching, if my evangelism is not going to matter, and it's not going to matter if it's predetermined, then why are we doing it? It matters. So let's look at John 3.16. Before we read it again, I want to tell you, here's a very important hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutic is a, a fancy way of saying Bible interpretation. Here's how you have to approach your Bible interpretation. You always understand the simplest before you move to the complex. Dr. W.A. Criswell, who was pastor at First Baptist Dallas literally for 54 years, 
PhD, a brilliant man, Dr. Criswell said when you approach the Bible, you don't start in Revelation and work backwards. You don't start in Romans 9 and work backwards. You start in places like John 3.16. Some of you who are professors, you would not dare try to take a kid and teach them trigonometry before you you taught them addition, would you? And 2 plus 2, no matter if you're getting your PhD in calculus, 2 plus 2 will always be what? It will never contradict. It will never go against it. So theology, it's the same way. You start with the simple and you move forward. For God so loved the world. Let's walk through these words. So loved means God loved a whole bunch. That word love there is that Greek word agape, which means God chose to love something. It's not an act of feeling. It's an act of the will. It's an act of behavior. God says, I love somebody. It says, I love the world. Seventy-eight times in the book of John, this Greek word world is used. It's a word cosmos. What does this word world mean here? It means the sum total of individuals. For God so loved the sum total of individuals. I want to know, I don't know that, that preaches, doesn't it? <laughs> The sum total of individuals that whosoever... Now, this is very important if you're taking notes. If you were to transliterate that word whosoever, that means to take it right from the Greek and, and put it in English, it would spell a little word, P-A-S. Okay, that's, a, that's the easiest way to understand that. And that word we're going to see is used multiple times in the New Testament. When he says whosoever, P-A-S here, whosoever... It means just what you think it means. It means everybody, anybody, and all. If anybody will believe in me, trust in me, not an easy believism, but surrender their life to me, anybody, they can have an abundant, eternal life instead of perishing and go to hell. Isn't that great? Now, I'm going to quote John Calvin because, see, this verse trips up a Calvinist. And John Calvin said... God loves everybody. He just doesn't love everybody in a salvistic way. That's not in my Bible. Can you imagine looking at one of your kids and go, you know, I love all my kids. Junior over here, I don't love them enough to save them from the house when it's burning on fire. You don't love them. He loves everybody, but not in a salvistic way. Friend, that's not what the Bible says. Don't go to the Bible with your preconceived notions and interpret Scripture. You interpret Scripture and let it develop your notions. Now, it's hard to do because we all approach the Scripture with some bias. But when it says, for God so loved the world that whosoever, you know what? It means what it says and says what it means. John Bramlett was a great football player. He was a very vile person. I think we have a picture of John. A very vile person, a drunk, an abusive, mean guy. When he retired from the NFL, he went home to Memphis, Tennessee. And some men came to his house to witness to him. He didn't want to talk to him. He had to hide his beer under his chair. I've had that happen to me before. That's so funny. When I see that, I mean, you want to drink your beer in your house, you go ahead. You shouldn't stop because the preacher comes in there. And, but I will intentionally stay so it'll get hot up under the chair just to... Just to <laughs> You know, drink it. But if you're not going to drink it, then I'm going to, hey, what's, what do you got to eat tonight? We're going to stick around for a while. John Bramlett, they gave him a Bible. He took it. He began in his office to read that Bible, and he ended up in John 3, 16. He began to read, whosoever, God so loved the world, God so loved the world. And he began to say, does that mean God loves me? 
Am I part of the world? Am I that whosoever? And when John Bramlett realized that that meant him, he gave his life to Christ and was radically changed. Folks, they say there's 7.3 billion people here on this earth today. And I want to tell you, this verse applies to every one of them individually. I read this week, a preacher said, it's, it's great that God didn't put a name in here. Because he could have put Andy or he could have put Tom or Jeremy, but he'd been talking about somebody else, right? When he said, whosoever and the whole world, you know what? That meant you. That meant you and that meant everyone you love. Isn't that awesome? And and the greatness of this doesn't stop here. Let's go to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Brian, go back to the first part of that verse, please. Let's walk through this. Lord's not slow. People were asking about the second coming. When's Jesus coming back? This is 30 years after he, he had died and risen, and they're already beginning to say he's, he's not keeping his word. He's not coming back. And, and, and God, through Peter, says, look. God's not a slacker. God's not asleep. There is a reason he has not come back. Instead, he is patient. That means long-suffering. That he is patient with you. Let's go to the next part of that. Not wanting anyone. Now, here's an interesting thing if you're taking notes. If you were to transliterate the Greek word here, verse 9, anyone... It would spell a little word, T-I-N-A-S. T-I-N-A-S. That means all. Its sister word is spelled T-I-N-E-S, which means some. The Greek word here is T-I-N-A-S, all. Not wanting anyone to perish But everyone, there we go again. That's that little word I mentioned to you earlier that transliterates P-A-S. Everyone that's used in John 3.16. That little word, listen, that little word is found 1,228 times in the New Testament. 1,228 times. It's, It's translated as all or everyone or whosoever. And folks, some Calvinists that I've read will translate that and say that that all means the elect, or it means some people. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned. That's that same word, for everybody and anybody have sinned. Nobody translates that, the elect have sinned, or some have sinned. We, we, everybody says we've all sinned. And when he says here, but he wants everyone to come to repentance, not to go to hell, that means everybody. That means everybody. I was reading in a study Bible not long ago, and, and the, the, the guy is a, is a pretty good Bible scholar. He's a Calvinist, but here's how he danced around this. He said, well, I think this is talking about God's wanting Christians to come back to him and repent. That is absolutely not what that's saying. That repentance is synonymous with a conversion, with a turning to God, repenting from a sinful lifestyle and being saved. Get a hold of this. The Bible says the second coming itself is being being held back so more people can be saved because God looks down at us and he loves us and he wants you and those you love to be saved. Isn't that awesome? John Calvin and Augustine, about this verse, said this. Well, this is God's revealed will. He's revealing his will. But his secret will, 
I'm not making this up. Is some will be saved and some will be damned. Let me tell you, we got a gigantic problem if there's another book in heaven God's sitting on that's different from this book. But we don't. Hebrews 6.18, listen to what it says. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. I'm not even interested in the rest of that verse right now. Folks, if God says he wants everyone to be saved here, but he's sitting on a book in heaven that says, nah, that's not really true. God's not telling the truth. And folks, I want to tell you, God is telling the truth. God is telling the truth. Now, listen, the Bible says most people aren't going to be saved. You know that? Most people aren't going to be saved. But, but I want to tell you why. It, it's not because God doesn't love them and doesn't want to save them. It's because they're going to reject God. Because we as churches and Christians do a poor job of evangelizing. We do a poor job with our mission work. People are going to die and go to hell But it's not because God doesn't want to save them or because they can't be saved. If you're taking notes, these great verses, Ezekiel 18, this is in the Old Testament, if you don't know, 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And verse 32 in the same chapter, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. He's talking about spiritual here. Repent. And live. Acts 17.30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people, all people, (laughs) everywhere to repent. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist in the 1800s. D.L. Moody said, God never calls you to do something you can't do. And if God calls all people everywhere, that is completely inclusive to repent. That means he's calling you and those you love and that you can. I'm sold on this, I guess you can tell. But I think the stakes are so high. I am not into philosophical theology at all. I'm into theology that you live out because that's what God meant for it to be. Here's what I want you to do. Here's a, here's a homework assignment. I want you to go home. If you've got kids, maybe they don't live at home, maybe they do. Grandkids, I want you to look at their pictures tonight. And if you're a Calvinist, that is certainly your choice. Well, what is that? You, really not your choice. It was predetermined for you to be that little theology humor there. I want you to look at those kids. I want you to ask yourself this honestly. Are you okay with before that child was born, God predestining it to hell? My sister's pastor in Tennessee had four boys. Said he wasn't going to witness to them. If they were to be saved, they would be saved. If they die and go to hell, it would be for the glory of God. Oh, my goodness. I want to tell you, I can't look at my kids and my grandkids, and I can't look at you. And I can't believe from what I understand the Bible 
that before you were born, before my grandkids were born, they didn't have a chance. If that's true, you better never have another kid. I don't believe it's true. So here's what we need to do tonight. Let's say you came in here and you're not saved. You're convicted of that now. You come tonight and give your life to Christ. Romans 10, 13 says, Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, He will save you. He'll save you if you'll come to Him. Maybe you'd like to join our church tonight. I hope I hadn't scared you off. I hope I've encouraged you to be a part of us. But this is who we are. Christian, maybe tonight where you're standing or maybe at the altar, there's people you need to pray for who are lost, who need Jesus. Let's stand. As God leads you, you come. We'll be waiting on you.